0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's Minister of Health has finally given the okay to nurse colleges to expedite the international nurse registration. Sounds like a step in the right direction, but what else needs to be done? Forcing our elderly in long-term care homes is not the solution to Ontario's hospital crisis. Dr. Ahmed Iria, a palliative care lead at Kensington Gardens Long-Term Care Home, will join us to talk about that. And major telecom companies have all cut a deal to help each other in the future. All of this to avoid an event like the Rogers fiasco this past July. How much can we rely on this deal? Well, we'll discuss that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML. We want to talk about health care here in the province of Ontario. It's been front and center for the last little while. Uh, the premier, the health minister, everyone has been talking about this about what they need to do with the crisis that we have. We have ERs that shut down for periods of time. Uh, We have people lined up hallway medicine. That phrase is uh, starting to be used again. There could be a breakthrough, though, uh, with some of the things that the government has talked about doing over the last couple of days, including the story yesterday that uh, the Ontario government is now giving the okay for the nurses colleges to expedite international nurse registration. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Claudette Holloway. Uh, Dr. Holloway is the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Uh, Doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today.
1: Good morning and thank you for the opportunity. Well, let me ask you
0: right up front. I mean, I and a lot of other people have been very frustrated with some of the government missives over the last little while. To talk about beds, we're going to add beds, and a bed is a piece of furniture. I, th- this was always about staffing. It was always about you know getting people in there th- to provide the care. Uh, with the announcements yesterday, are you more optimistic than you were earlier?
1: It's welcome news to hear that uh, we're going to uh, expedite the international educated uh, nurses onto the scene um, because as you say we've been asking for this for some time and uh, over 22,000 of them are here in Canada, 14,000 of which are registered nurses. Um, they, they're waiting in the wings, and the registration process has uh, been very slow. Uh, so it's welcome news to hear that um, there's plans, strong plans in place to, you know, get them on board so that they can help relieve this nursing crisis. As you said, um, without the nurses, you know, our health system will really collapse. The nurses are the uh, the backbone of the system. So certainly this is welcome news, but it's not, uh, it's not going to solve all the problems. We know that having a long-term recruitment and retention strategy is absolutely essential. And encouraging nurses who have retired, who have left the province back by repealing Bill 124 will certainly help. And also they will come, come on board and help you know uh, mentor these internationally educated nurses so that they can get on board as quick as possible.
0: It it had to be awfully frustrating uh, for you and others in the the RNA, knowing that there was a a solution at hand here. Uh, There were people already here uh, that want to work in the healthcare system and and there were too many roadblocks in the way. Uh, It's it's reassuring to know that they finally have seen the light on this. But talk to us, if you could, about the process here and how quickly this can be expedited to get people into the hallways and offering that care.
1: Well, uh, many of the... um the internationally educated nurses have been waiting in the wings for, we've had reports of three years or more. So now that this, uh, the legislation is in place, I would say that, you know, things are really going to move forward and, um, we need that, we need to, uh, absolutely bring all the nurse educators, health educators, um, registered nurses, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists into this so that, you know, we can maintain safety and quality and we know that the college will always maintain safety and quality to protect the public Um, so because so many of them were waiting in the wings I would expect that many of them will you know be able to come on board uh, very soon we have a fall uh, coming up where we know that there's usually more uh, respiratory infectious diseases. We have to remember that the pandemic is not over. Um, so we really need to alleviate the burden on nurses who have been burnt out for so long and, and doing so much more uh, than they you know, signed up for. But nurses care and they have tried to fill in the gaps. So bringing the international educators on board to help their colleagues will certainly go a long way.
0: What what is the process here now? You know, when they say they have to be re, uh, there's there's the ones that are going to come back. That's one, but the foreign trained nurses, uh, is there concern about the level of training in other countries, uh, vis-a-vis what happens here in Ontario, or is this just really a, a process of of registering and, and and starting to work?
1: Well, from my understanding, it's a process of getting the registration done because these, as you say, these nurses have been practicing in their own country, and the college has uh, standards that will be met. So we're not uh, we are quite confident that we're not going to compromise on on quality and competence but it's just a matter of clearing the backlog because we mm-hmm. know that um the college had reported they had cleared at least what 3 or 4000 but we know there's so many more so you know just getting that on board with uh they've also the government also waived the fees for registration so all these things certainly will help alleviate the the problem
0: but from a uh, uh, uh An international standpoint, I mean, you've you've worked overseas, you're in the UK for for a time as well. Uh, Are the standards relatively the same? Is it just a matter of tweaking that training to to accommodate what's going on here in Ontario?
1: Well, um, it depends on the country, but a nurse nurse has to have an education that is is rooted in in evidence. So um, they're here. Um, I don't believe we have a concern about the quality just because they're uh, from across, you know, from other countries. As you said, I came from another country myself and, um, you know, we, we, you know, we come on on board par and ready. And there's also courses that nurses can take if there are any education gaps. So um, having the government, you know, fund those will also help because no matter where you are in your nursing career, you're always uh, seeking to stay on top uh... with professional development so it doesn't matter uh... whether we're actually here or from another country we always stay on top of our education to be current in our practice
0: You talked about something that uh, that I think has to be part of this discussion, uh, and that's retention. It's it's one thing to to recruit nurses, and that's absolutely, as you mentioned, doctor, part of the problem. Although it's and it's part of the solution too, but it's not the entire solution. But what about retention? It's been a rough three and a half years for an awful lot of people in the healthcare profession. I was described to me by a number of people, nurses as well, that simply said, you know what, well, that's fine if 10 new nurses walk in the front door, but about nine of them, others are walking out the back door, and just said, that's enough. We can't do this anymore. How do you work on that? You talked about salary, and that's got to be something the province has to address, but working conditions have to be involved in that as well. How, how rough is it there, and how easily is it going to be to, to rectify that, to make it a, a safe, a, a workable environment for nurses?
1: well as you know nurses have reported that you know they are they're choosing to to leave the profession because the work conditions are uh, unacceptable so that's why we're saying that um, we need the government to put new resources behind um, strategies to retain our nurses attract them back Um, we know that many nurses have worked in uh, agencies because they feel they want more control so We need to have the government uh, again um, urgently address this long-term strategy for recruitment and retention so that nurses can build their careers in in Ontario. Um, They're not walking away because they don't care. They're walking away because they feel that they're they're not being heard, they're not being respected. Uh, Again, Bill 124 affects a number of health professionals, including nurses, and they are, um, uh, we are a female dominated profession and we don't know if that's, you know, it's likely one of the causes, um, but we know there are others that have, you know, don't have to meet that criteria. So uh, these things we've said, Bill 124 being repealed will make a significant step. And uh, we hope to hear. We continue to deliver the message, even though it seems like there's no uh, give from the government there. But we know that that message is important, and we will continue to deliver it.
0: There's one other element to, to this whole process uh, that. that... I've talked about it at length with a number of healthcare professionals, and that's home care. Now, we've talked about acute care hospitals, certainly, and and now there's the transfer of some of those people maybe to long-term care facilities. I I don't want to necessarily get into the debate about how effective that's going to be. But home care seems to be a part that's missing from that puzzle, and it's an an essential part. We already know, uh, and I know you know from your experience, that that most people uh, would rather be at home. And, and be cared for there uh but there's again there's a shortage there there's a, a pay inequity that i was told about uh that's something i would think doctor that just has to be addressed
1: you're correct because all areas of nurses are, are infected uh, are affected um but we know that hospitals have taken the brunt of it but certainly home care and this is where we can utilize uh the skills of our registered nurses and our, our uh nurse practitioners who have you know increased uh skills to practice, and they can help in you know a lot of ways to address the health needs of Ontarians. So um, you're, you're right that uh, we need to consider the whole area of nursing. And people want to age at home, um, but we know there are many that need the, the help of long-term care, and that's where our... Uh, nurse practitioners can be of extreme health or clinical nurse specialists. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's a complex situation that needs um, a sit down at a table where we can look at this overall retention and recruitment strategies. We're thankful for the government for putting in place our chief nursing officer. We want to see them at the table so that they can help um, move this along so that we can uh, go forward in a way that you know transforms Healthcare and nursing in Ontario.
0: How quickly can this whole process begin, and how quickly can we start to see some of these uh, nurses? Well, so hopefully some of them are going to come back into into the province for care here, uh, but uh, some of the foreign trained nurses too. Is it, is it a quick process? I know that there's a an indoctrination period, certainly, and 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 you have to keep an eye on on the new recruits essentially uh, for a period of time. Just explain to us, if you could, just that, what that process is and how we, how quickly we might be able to see some of the positive results of this.
1: Well, again, um, because many, you know, many have been waiting for years. So those that have been all been in the process, um, you know, they're likely to be able to, to come into, uh, you know, from now to probably the, the end of the year. I, You know, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to predict how fast the college can work, but I'm sure the college is doing all it can to move things forward as quickly as possible. Because we know that this is, um, this is something that uh, has been present with us for some time. There's been thousands waiting in the wing. So once the process gets moving, you know, then they can get them into the into the workplace. So uh, we're hoping that we know it won't happen overnight, but we know we, we need to have a timely process. So we look forward to hearing from the college. Um, How things are moving forward and institutions uh, and home care settings, how they can start to, you know, have things in place to receive the international educators so that they can start working.
0: You mentioned about the uh, the the bill, the prohibitive bill that forced a lot of people out of the industry, and, and the ceiling basically that the government put on wages. Have you given up that battle, yet, Doctor? I mean, you've you've mentioned it a couple of times, and I've talked to other folks in in the RNA, and that they still feel that that's a, a major issue here right now. The premier's answer more recently was, "Well, it expires in the springtime, and then we'll negotiate contracts then." Uh, is that too little, too late? Or do you want to see immediate action on that?
1: We want to see immediate action. Um, and RNAO is not alone in calling for this. We've had many other health professionals call because it affects them too. Um, we've even had physicians calling. Um, so, you know, the longer that Bill 124 exists, uh, the more nurses are going to see that they're not valued and they're leaving. So, it's something that we're saying is, a, you know, it's a reasonable request because we know that other uh professionals have not had that cap put on and uh, we see the cost of living going up every day and yet they're capped at 1% we know that they're given their all they're working uh, way past their due, you know, the end of the shift. They're, they're, ca- they care and therefore they're doing their best. And we need the government to step up and do their best and repeal this bill. We've had uh, the RNO action alerts where anyone can sign. We've had thousands of signatures and we will continue to deliver the message because we believe that is a significant part of solving the nursing crisis.
0: I mean, it's an elementary problem, isn't it? As you've mentioned, some people, nurses are just leaving uh, and going to private sector agencies uh, where, where they pay more. Uh, the, you know, that, that screams of pay inequity that needs to be addressed.
1: What it is a pay inequity. We don't want to blame the nurses. We know that the nurses are seeking control of their work environment. But we know that um, when hospitals and agencies hire uh, nurses on a private basis, we know that healthcare dollars are being spent at a higher rate so, you know, we want to see that money invested in our not-for-profit health care system because really uh, for agency nursing, it's kind of a form of, of privatization. So let's get those healthcare care dollars um, used effectively and back into our publicly funded health care system.
0: Well, I guess baby steps is uh, the way we have to look at this, but it looks like there's some progression here, and and, uh, we've got our fingers crossed that maybe this is going to be the beginning of uh, finding some long-term solutions. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate our conversation.
1: Thanks so much, Sam. (laughs) Goodbye.
0: Take care. Dr. Claudette Holloway, who is the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, with uh, a pretty positive feeling about some of the changes the uh, government is proposing here.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I want to get back and, and circle back into a, the very controversial piece of legislation that the uh, the government passed without really any public consultation at all, and that was the More Beds, Better Care Act uh, that they rushed through the legislature, uh, all on the premise that they say it's an immediate part of the fix, anyway. Uh, for easing some of the pressure in hospitals. Well, not everybody agrees. Of course, they didn't have an opportunity to have their say uh, because we didn't have uh, any public consultation on that. But that has not stifled the the concerns and the protests that are going on here, uh, many suggesting that this is not part of the solution. This a- might actually exacerbate things in both hospitals and in long-term care facilities. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Amitorea, who is the uh, palliative care lead at Kensington Gardens Long-Term Care Home in Toronto also a faculty at McMaster University. Uh, doctor, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, thank you so much, Bill. I, I read with great interest uh, your op-ed piece about this that you uh, co-authored about More Beds uh, Better Care Act, and and uh, it, it outlines an awful lot of the concerns that you've been expressing for quite some time right now, that as, as some people uh, characterize this, this is really offloading uh, people that need care on, into long-term care facilities, uh, and it's it it, it on paper, I don't know how you can ever justify this, but the reality here is that there's a level of care that's still needed for many of these patients, and, and I'm not quite sure if the government understands that.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Bill. And as someone who works on the front lines in hospitals and in long-term care, I mean, I can speak on behalf of many of my fellow colleagues and health workers were absolutely shocked and appalled by this piece of legislation. Um, I've actually never heard uh, this level of alarm from many of my colleagues at this point in time, uh, you know, previously, even during the pandemic and, you know, through what's happened. And, you know, the reason for this is because, of course, from the hospital side, we have a duty to provide people with a safe and effective Effective discharge, we we want to actually reassure ourselves and we work very hard to make sure that people are hopefully receiving, you know, the best care that is possible within the system, uh, even when they're discharged from the hospital. Uh, what people also don't realize, Bill, is that, you know, by the time, uh, you know, someone is often waiting for a long-term care bed and they're in long-term care, they're actually quite sick. So often these are people who are, who are in their 80s or 90s. We know that the, you know, the average life expectancy is just around 18 months, which means that there are actually people who are surviving much less even in a range of perhaps six months or less and it's frankly very unsafe to separate them from their families and their loved ones who as we know are not just visitors in long-term care but are you know in fact essential care providers so they're coming in they're monitoring they're actually uh, assisting with feeding and hydration they're providing translation services and of course we can understand how being sent away you know hundreds of kilometers away potentially from your family when you're so sick and you know in fact approaching the end of life would be dangerous it would cause more suffering
0: i, I heard some of the premier's comments about this when he started justify removing thor this and, and he characterized this uh, as, well, you know, it's, it, this is in the patient's best interest. You know, move them out of a, a hospital environment a, a ver- like that where they're just in bed, and they can move into this nice, comfortable setting. And, and I'm not sure if the Premier has a full understanding. I know you work in these facilities. Uh, what he seemed to be describing was independent living uh, in some of these facilities. And, and that's a far different thing from, from some of the other parts of, of these facilities as well. I mean, there can be assisted living, independent living, but there's also people that are bedridden uh, in these facilities. I mean, that's, that's part of the concern. Uh, and they may simply go from one facility to another. Uh, and, and as you mentioned in the op-ed piece, doctor, face the same challenges, lack of staff, uh, you know, right. uh, some, some concerns about the facilities themselves. I you know there's a, an argument to be made and uh, I'll, I'll throw this right out here. Uh, an awful lot of these places are going to have empty beds or have empty beds because they're not very well run. And, uh, I'd hate for my loved one to have to get stuck in one of those facilities.
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're, you're very right that, um, you know, I, I I sense from the Premier's comments that, and even the Minister of Long-Term Care's comments that, you know, and I worry that they do not have a real understanding of what this patient population actually looks like. Um, and, you know, to your second point, Bill, it's very true that, I mean, you know, we would expect that the homes with the shorter waiting lists are more likely to be the ones which actually don't provide a good quality of care. Generally, they would be um, owned by for-profit long-term care term care corporations, they would be less likely to have air conditioning, they would perhaps be more older long term care facilities, more likely to have less staff who are available on the ground. Um, So of course, that, you know, that's a major issue where I mean, I mean, we know that most of the people on the wait list for long term care actually don't want to go to those facilities. And I don't blame them. I mean, who would want to you know, end up people want the best options, and they have the right to choose those best options. So this bill becomes sort of a way to coerce people uh, who are already very vulnerable And once again, in the, you know, the later stage of their life, and also sort of put extra pressure on their burnt out caregivers to go into these long term care facilities. And ironically, I actually wanted to add that, you know, these homes, which are understaffed, the for profit long term care homes, actually, historically have higher rates of transferring their residents back to hospital anyways. So I worry that, you know, this actually won't solve, you know, our major issue in the healthcare system at this point in time. Well, I don't want to be overly cynical. Well, maybe
0: I do. I don't know. But, I mean, as, as I studied this bill, we didn't have a whole lot of time to study it. I, I couldn't help but think of a discussion you and I had a, a couple of years ago uh, during the first wave of, of COVID and the long-term care s- s- problems that were there, the crisis that was going on in long-term care facilities. Our listeners may recall they actually had to call the Army in to try to assist the staff in some of these facilities. But at that time, uh, there was a clear uh, designation between private and public delivery of, of this uh, this system and and statistically there's strong evidence that the the private facilities don't offer the same level of care oftentimes substandard oftentimes uh, uh not enough staff on unveil- available for things like this and, and we also know by the way that an awful lot of the boards of directors of these private facilities are either conservative supporters financially or sometimes former conservative mps or even a premier thrown in from time to time And and as as one of my colleagues suggested just a couple of weeks ago, this this bill seems as if what this is streamlined to do is to feed these people into the private system, which is going to be a moneymaker for people. And I hate to think that's happening. I don't want to believe that, that they would have that sort of a motivation, but that seems to be the end result here.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's what we're worried about here. And as I've explained the reasons, Bill, as to why this is very, very risky for people. But, you know, we are worried about, you know, this becoming more about moving people around beds and specifically moving people to these, uh, you know, for-profit long-term care facilities. Um, You know, I think it's speculation, of course, that there may be ties, um, you know, with, you know, the Conservative government and, you know, the owners of these for-profit corporations. Uh, We know that many of these corporations have lobbyists that are influencing the government government, and that's nothing new. And and I will add that, you know, of course, during COVID, we've seen, you know, this gap, uh, you know, in care between for-profit and non-profit delivery of long-term care uh, widen in a a horrific fashion. And I've seen that with my own eyes as someone who worked in for-profit long-term care homes in earlier waves of the pandemic, where I was actually working alongside the military. But even historically, before, um, you know, you know, know, before the pandemic, we've actually known that, you know, like similar residents in for-profit long-term long-term care facilities had a 10% higher risk of dying. They have a 25% higher risk of hospitalization. They're more likely to get bed sores. Um, so COVID actually just, you know, exposed these longstanding problems. And, you know, as an example, four out of five homes um, who, uh, which, um, you know, were involved in the military report were for profit as well. So we know that this is, you know, definitely tied to quality of care. And once again, I do worry that, you know, this bill has become a way to actually coerce people who are extremely vulnerable uh, to get into these long-term care facilities and very worrisome, sending them far away from their families um, where, you know, they're suffering and isolation would be increased even more
0: well because of as, uh, as you've talked about in the past the family members loved ones are, are actually part of the care continuum here i mean there, there simply aren't enough staff to, ans- to answer every call uh, but they assist in feeding uh, any number of other different things You know it's just essential if you're going to move that patient you know m- could, as you say, could be hundreds of kilometers away, Uh, but you know what? 20 kilometers away could be problematic for somebody who doesn't have an automobile to be able to travel back and forth to see their loved one. That reduces their level of care, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean absolutely. I can share with you just the other day, once again working on the hospital side, I have these conversations with patients and families about their discharge options on a very regular basis, and I was speaking to, you know, you know someone who's um, you know, older and has dementia and had suffered from pneumonia but now recovered and thinking about what the next steps are, unable to go back home because of home care being so uh, poorly resourced and, you know, having a spouse who's also quite elderly and burnt out, but the spouse does not drive and uh, can only take the bus. And you very rightly have, you know, sort of explained, Bill, that, you know, 20 or even 30 kilometers in in the city can mean the difference between the West and the East end of Toronto, where it's very hard to get from place to place. And even in the hospital, we see that the spouse comes in on a regular basis to feed their loved one, meet with, uh, you know, the care team, with the physician and nurses to make sure they're getting proper care. And the worry is, is that, you know, as this legislation, um, you know, it's already law, and I believe it has to receive royal assent very soon. uh, But, you know, as it starts uh, playing down on the front lines, that this will result in a safe, uh, sorry, in, a, in an unsafe discharge for this person. It will obviously worsen distress in the resident and um, you know in the caregiver. And you're, you know, you're very right. In, I wanted to point out in long-term care, we're still not properly staffed. So even in well-run long-term care homes, like I work in a not-for-profit long-term care facility in downtown Toronto, we have one nurse looking after 25 residents in the day, and uh, that drops down to one in 50 at night. We have one PSW looking after maybe three or four residents, but in other long-term care facilities, you might have one nurse looking after 30 or 32 residents. And maybe one PSW will be looking after five, 10, or even 20 residents at one time. So... Often the way that we bridge the gap, and it's obviously not the correct way because we need proper staffing, but the way we bridge the gap is by having family caregivers come in. So their role does not end at all when their loved one is admitted into long-term care, and that's how we sort of try to, you know, sort of make make things work. But of course, sending somebody far away, it's going to worsen the neglect, it's going to worsen the suffering, and I actually worry that people will die uh, prematurely because of this.
0: I've only got a minute or two left, but you touched on something that I just wanted you to briefly expand on, if you could, doctor. Home care. You've told us statistically the overwhelming majority of people that are waiting would rather be at home and being cared for there. Uh, the the It's just not there. I mean, the funding for, for home care is not there. Uh, it's apparently, I'm told, not a very attractive uh, channel for nurses to go into because the pay is terrible and, and the working conditions can be onerous, shall we say. Uh, why is there more, no, more focus on this? They, to, to make that part of this whole process, to that alleviate, I think, an, an awful lot of the pressure. And as you mentioned in the op-ed piece, you talk about waiting lists. There are over 15,000 Ontarians waiting for home care, and they can't get
3: it. Yeah, so very briefly, a lot to talk about there, Bill, about home care. But very briefly, uh, absolutely, if we had better funding for home care, it would prevent a lot of people from ending up in the hospital in the first place. It would actually allow hospitalized uh, elders, people with disabilities to come back home. And what we know is that almost 100% of seniors in our country in Canada want to receive care in their own homes for as long as possible. People don't want to end up in any type of uh, long-term care uh, facility, regardless of you know the model of care, regardless of the location they want to age in place in their own homes and I will add that you know actually uh, investment in home care would be a lot cheaper our taxpayer dollars would go a lot further because you don't need to buy land you don't need to pay developers billions of dollars to erect these massive you know buildings and care could be more individualized the infection risk would be would be much lower so the benefits of home care um, I can go on and on about them and uh, you know I, I'm worried that once again as we've talked about for-profit corporations influencing uh, government I'm also also worried that developers also have an influence on government as well which is why we're just building more and more of these long-term care facilities rather than investing in home care i mean one last stat i'll just share with you is that sure we have data that tells us that you know an average person in canada receiving publicly funded home care receives five hours a week and even if we increase that to 22 hours a week more than quadruple the amount of service they received it would still be cheaper than long-term care so, I mean, it's the fiscally conservative move. It allows people to age with uh, dignity and respect. Of course, we have to improve labor conditions. So absolutely, we should be investing a lot more in home care. It'll really help our current hospital situation as well.
0: And as you mentioned, I, I know the bill's passed and it's going to get royal assent. It's a majority government. We all know that. But that doesn't mean that the, the conversation should stop and it's not going to. I did, listeners can go to the uh, Golden Mail website, by the way, and see the op-ed piece that uh, we just talked about. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this today.
3: Thank you so much, Bill.
0: Doctor, I'm Ada Bararia, palliative care lead, and of course, part of the faculty at McMaster University.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Y'all remember uh, July the 8th of this past summer, don't you? It was a day from hell for an awful lot of us. Uh, That's when self-service, just essentially everything went out. Uh, Couldn't get TV, couldn't get cell phone, couldn't do anything uh, for the longest time. And, and I guess what made a bad situation even worse is a lot of an awful lot of us had no idea what was going on or why it was going on for the longest time. So the federal government, of course, uh, has stepped in, and uh, the minister in charge, of course, Minister Champagne, uh, got them all in one room, all the telecommunications companies, and said, okay, you guys got to fix this. Uh, you got to come up with a plan here so that if this happens again. Well, they announced yesterday that they have come to an agreement right now. They've signed on to a formal agreement that they say could stave off the worst effects of a major outage such as the one that we had back in July. Part of the deal, they, they say that they're going to uh, support and assist their competitors during any major uh, network outages uh, so customers can at least make some calls. So is this the answer that we're looking for and is it going to add some stability and maybe even uh, you know some confidence uh, for consumers? Let's uh, bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation. Marvin is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, great to have you back with us uh, and uh, thanks for joining us today.
2: Glad to be with you, Bill.
0: Is this, is this part of the solution here? Is this going to assuage some of the concerns we've all had?
2: Well, yes. Yes, I think it is. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to modify your opening ever so slightly. On July 8th, it was a failure of the Rogers network. Nothing happened if you were a Bell customer. Nothing happened if you were a TELUS customer. I'm a Bell customer. I don't know what you were talking about, Bill. July 8th, <laughs> <was my laughs> but is um, Where like were the- you when I needed you? I know. But I'm saying that because uh, those three, the big three, Bell, Tellus, and Rogers, are not equal sized in terms of their subscriber base. And Rogers is the biggest. Rogers has 10.5 million, maybe 11 million subscribers. So many people in your audience would certainly be connected to Rogers. The deal that was announced yesterday, as you say, is that uh, the, the, the other competitors are going to come to the aid of the one that's in trouble. I will tell you on July 8th, both Bell and Telus did try to come to the aid of Rogers, but Rogers didn't have an ability to swing those customers over to those other networks. In other words, they had to get to some physical locations that they couldn't get to, uh, and, and they just they couldn't make it happen. So it wasn't that they didn't try. Therefore, and forgive me, Bill, I don't I'm not normally a skeptic, but I am a little skeptical about this deal. First, it's happened in two months, uh, you know, two months. So you solve this big technological problem of how you're going to transfer customers in two months. Number two, because Rogers is the biggest, I'm not just sure how the two smaller companies are going to be able to absorb and serve all of those customers. You know, you've got to have a capacity. And if my capacity is for six million customers and suddenly you want me to give service to 10 and a 1000000 a half million, I'm just not quite clear how you make that happen. Number three, of course, is we're assuming that whatever the outage is, is only going to affect one person, conceivably we could have some kind of an attack that takes two or three of them out of the equation, and then what do you do? And then finally, they said their priorities were to make sure that emergency services, so things like 911, access to ambulance, access to paramedics, that wouldn't be interrupted, that businesses would be able to continue to do their transactions. And then, yes, number three on the list is you and I as consumers would still be able to have service. But my feeling is that that's more of a prioritized list. In other words, if this were to happen tomorrow. Number one priority is the 911 and the emergencies. Number two is the businesses, and you and I are number three. Therefore, we might still see some kind of an interruption. It was an easy thing to announce. It's what we all wanted to hear yesterday, but is this going to solve it all? Oh, I'm just a little skeptical.
0: Yeah, the analogy I saw was if, uh, like you say, if, if Bell goes down and the other guys are going to try to support, that's like a cruise ship, you know, that all of a sudden gets stalled, and the tugboat shows up and says, "Bring me, bring me your passengers." Uh, it's not going to work. I mean, but sheer numbers—that's a concern. But you know what else about, about and, and you're quite right, of course. It was Rogers that, that you know went down on on the eighth of July. But it, what surprised me as the day went on and I, we found out more about this, Marvin, was that what Rogers controls so much more than just cell phones and and and, tele, and televisions. I mean, uh, you know, radio stations stop broadcasting. I mean, a lot. You know, because they were they're all affiliated in some way, shape, or form. I'm I'm not that techie that I can explain to it why, but. It it, it just pointed to me to say, boy, you know, there's a whole lot of people and a whole lot of companies that are far too reliant on just one provider.
2: Yeah, so again, if you don't mind, I'm going to come at that two different ways. You are absolutely correct in saying that these are telecommunications companies. They are not necessarily a phone company. So, for instance, you can get your television service through your telecommunications. You can get your internet service. And when Rogers went down, it affected all aspects of their service. Now, separately from yesterday's agreement, Rogers said, this is what they've said, is that they are going to migrate their different services onto different networks or servers so that if, say, the phone's part goes down, it won't affect the television part or the Internet part, which I think is great. That makes great sense to me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, how fast can you do it? In other words, is it done already? Did you install all the new boxes you need to install already? Or are you going to phase it in over two or three or four years? Therefore, again, if there was an outage tomorrow, I'm not sure it's going to be much different than July 8th. But but the other side of this, which I think is important, is that um, and I, it's so easy to blame the telecommunications companies. But if I'm a business and I rely you know, almost completely on my Internet connection, I've moved everything into this virtual world. Well, then this has become mission critical. And the question that you should be doing is, well, what happens if this mission critical thing goes down? In other words, let's say I'm a hospital. And, and I rely a lot on Rogers Services to perform my day-to-day operations, then you should have a contingency plan as well. Yes, Rogers should have a contingency plan, but you should have a contingency plan as well. And let me use a simple example. If you take uh, Hamilton Health Sciences, a big employer here in town, more than 10,000 employees, the bigger hospital here, to take hydro, electricity, we, we come to rely on it, but yes, every now and again it goes down. Well, the hospital has created its own backup systems. It has its own uh, generators and co-generation ability so that it can flick a switch and within a millisecond be its own island producing electricity, even if the rest of the world around it is not. And I would say the same sort of thing should be for mission-critical people. If your business completely relies on the Internet, you might want to pay the extra money and have two subscriptions and have some of your Internet traffic on one provider, another on another, so that if something goes down, you can just flick a switch and go back between them. Yes, I realize that's an additional expense, but if it is that mission-critical, what have you done to prepare for it. And I think that was a healthy reminder out of all this as well. Yes, let's rely on them to solve the problem, but let's also be a little more self-reliant and have some of our own backup solutions. What
0: difference would, uh, would more competition mean in a situation like this, more providers? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're still, ba- we're still basically relying on the big three.
2: <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, there are some smaller players, uh, 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 not to put too fine a point on it, but Shaw obviously offers uh, phone services. There's a, uh, a company, Quebec or out of Quebec that offers phone services, but they're all relatively minor. So to your question, it would be, I would love to see another large player, not somebody small that provides phone service to 50,000 people, but if a Verizon were to come north or yeah. or one of these big players, um, that would have then spread the traffic out. Uh, if something goes wrong, you can, again, reallocate across those different providers. I don't think it would be a bad thing. Now you'll notice in yesterday's agreement between the big three, that's not something they suggested. They didn't put that out as one of the solutions. They would rather fix the problem themselves. And look, we've got it sorted out now. No need, no need to talk about bringing Verizon north. But I don't think that's a bad idea. And I'm, I'm continue to wonder why The Canadian government, whoever is running it, whether it's a conservative, liberal, or NDP, why we are just so reluctant to allow a little more competition in the market, beyond the fact that more competition might bring the prices down, and we tend to be paying some of the highest rates for our cell phone service, etc. But even for something like this to have another uh, backup plan, I don't think it's such a bad thing.
0: Well, listen, uh, I've known Marvin Ryder for a long time, and you're one of the most patriotic people I ever know. Do you buy this argument that it's all about Canadian sovereignty? Because that's what they keep running out at us. And, you know, no, no, we've got to maintain the integrity of of the system. uh, And we don't want the Verizons and the others in there. I mean, that's malarkey as far as I'm concerned.
2: (laughs) Well, the the concern always is, and use a different example than telecommunications, there is a plant in Cincinnati, Ohio, that produces enough beer to meet all of Canada's needs. So how do our breweries, which are much smaller, uh, compete if we allow them just in without restrictions? So I get the idea. We don't necessarily want American companies to come in and take things away. We want to have our own made-in-Canada solution for any number of things, whether it's automobile making or what have you. So I'm, I'm not for a moment suggesting we just take all restrictions off and say, okay, if you're a big European player, come on in. If you're a big Asian player, come on in. We know, for instance, the challenges with Huawei. But having said that, I'm also not afraid of competition. Um, we've seen historically, if you shelter an industry, then you almost give it an excuse to not be at a world level of, of performance, to, to be standard in the global marketplace. So, you know, having somebody looking over your shoulder, putting a little competition in the market, forces Canadian companies to keep innovating and keep trying. So I, I'm not afraid of some competition. I just don't think I'd throw the doors wide open, Bill.
0: No, I agree with you totally, but I mean, you know, I, I think we always remember the example of when the Harper government years ago announced that they were going to uh, increase spend and, and welcome, and uh, Verizon, of course, I think we were on the phone 10 seconds after they made the announcement, and the very next day, the industry minister said, no, 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 we changed our minds. Uh, that, that's not what I meant to do at all, uh, and I, I'm sure there's a lot of lobbying going on like that, but I mean, this situation that happened in July, and, and as you say, the ongoing problem there with the rates that we pay in this country... Uh, screams for, for more competition, and the government seems just oblivious to that.
2: Well, Bill, if, if you don't mind, let me just swing this conversation slightly. Rogers, uh, as you know, has been in the midst of a large acquisition of Shaw Communications, yep. $23 billion, something like that, which has bogged down. It's not been happening at the rate it could. The Competition Bureau has been involved. Competition Bureau is asking them to do some different things to, to make sure that we don't have too much so this is in essence losing a player rather than adding a player and the minister champagne yesterday asked in the q and a around this said well i'm i'm still going to be considering how i'm going to handle the shaw rogers merger based on their response to this uh, shutdown that we saw in July. So, uh, you know, again, the, if, if you don't step up to the plate, if you don't do the right thing for Canadians, the stick that you've got is, well, we might not allow this merger to happen. We might not allow you to have this monopoly on the Canadian marketplace. So I think they're. I think the government is playing their cards correctly. I just don't know if anyone has the guts to open that door and and really bring another player in. But, boy, I think it would be interesting if they did.
0: Yeah. Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the Degroot School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.